0: Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, brought to you by The Sportsman Channel. All hunting, all fishing, all the time. Contact your local network provider and ask about The Sportsman Channel today. Now, here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, Dan Barraldo.
1: Thank you for joining us and welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the voice for bowhunting featuring the latest and greatest in bowhunting information. Today, I'm extremely excited to have Will Primos, founder of Primos Hunting Game Calls, joining us. Good morning, Will.
0: Good morning. How are you doing there?
1: Hey, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's good to hear your voice. What part
0: of the, what part of the country are you calling home these days?
1: We are in Baxter, Minnesota. All righty, so up north, uh dealing with a little heat, little humidity, but probably nothing what you guys are dealing with down south,
0: well, down south, Mississippi, where I call home we've got enough heat and enough humidity for everybody.
1: <laughs> I can believe that um, you know I just I really want to thank you for taking out taking time out of your busy schedule, you know and joining us, um, you know honestly, having the opportunity to chit chat with you. You know, when one of bowhunting's most well-respected icons and hunters.
0: Oh, I don't know about that, oh. but I appreciate uh, all the nice uh, words you have to say.
1: <laughs> no, you know, it's just it, it really is a good opportunity. Um, you know, I know our readers are going to be excited to get this interview downloaded into their library, and you know, I know I'm going to be doing the same as soon as we get this thing done. So, all right. Um, you know, for the listeners who don't know, you know the details of your background, you know, including where you came from, which you just mentioned. Uh, Mississippi. Um, could you share with us just how you got started in hunting and how the development of your first call came about?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm uh, I'm I'm 58 years old. I'm, I came uh, uh, into in this world in 1952 and was born on uh, a small farm. Uh, my family worked in town in the restaurant business, and so. I didn't have any neighbors. Um, I, I didn't have children to play with, so I entertained myself, built forts, shot BB guns, pellet guns, to 22s, to to 30 30s, and I hunted anything that walked and crawled. And when I couldn't do that, I was fishing, and that just became my passion. And I guess uh, for some reason, early on, um, I, I just appreciated the fact that some of the property that I had access to um, had game on it, and some didn't. And so I began to understand habitat and types of trees and, and and realize, you know, that you could do certain things to make hunting better. And, and so that really evolved into a real love for conservation. Um, some people kind of get crossed up and thinking, well, a conservationist is a tree hugger. And um, I'm not a tree hugger, but yet I respect the proper use of, of our resources, and, and that's really what makes me tick. Uh, big awesome. supporter of of the conservation organizations such as Ducks Unlimited and Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and National Wild Turkey Federation and Quality Deer Management Association is one that's doing a great job for the whitetail. Even though we've got lots of whitetails, there's not a lot of quality whitetails, and so they're doing more and more to to uh, help us understand how we can go about having more quality whitetails to to hunt, to view, and and to help enrich our lives. Yeah. But at any rate, uh, you know, as time went on, I guess duck hunting was the first thing that I did in the Mississippi Delta uh, with my my family, and I just was enthralled with the literally hundreds of thousands of ducks that made the migration every year, and then from there it was deer hunting and turkey hunting, and so I loved it all. And uh, I started making turkey calls um, as a a way to share some of my love of, of, of calling game up with my friends. And um, one thing led to another, and I said, heck, I might be able to start a business out of this. So uh, I was in the family restaurant business when I got out of college uh, and uh, was working hard, working six and most, most, most weeks, seven days a week. And um, I said, gosh, if I can do this, it would be something I really enjoy. And I started taking any spare time I had traveling and selling my wares on a table at, at little hunting shows um, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, one thing led to another, and I grew the business and started uh, audio recordings, and then I started video recordings. And um, one day somebody said, uh, well, you know, you're from Mississippi. What do you know about uh, elk? As a matter of fact, I was doing a seminar in Idaho, and I said, well, (laughs) we used to have a whole bunch of elk in Mississippi, but we killed them all. And now we're out here trying to finish the the deal. (laughs) So we got a laugh out of them. But, you know, I think the part that was was neat is that I would leave the south and go out west and stay there for anywhere from three to eight weeks every year. And during that time when elk were going through the mating ritual, going into the rut, getting from the pre-rut into the rut to the post-rut, and really understanding, recording their voices, and was able to learn a lot, and it, it just it just really gelled with me, and elk became my biggest passion as far as hunting goes. Wow, um, okay. It's an event at the time to, to leave home and go to a place where there's not as much humidity, where it is cool, and you're in the high mountains, and I love to work hard, and so the physical part of it um, just made sense to me, and, and I was drawn to it. And uh, we've just loved learning more and more and more about elk each year, and having our own videos to study and to realize what certain elk re- responded to and what certain elk didn't respond to. But you know, we um, we do it all from from waterfowl, you know, including ducks and, and geese, uh, and the elk and deer and turkey. So we make game calls for everything. And the company now has over 700 products, and we manufacture a lot of different products. We've got uh, 100 and 60 employees 162 employees i think it is now oh wow. wow and uh so we're busy a lot going on but it's a lot of fun you
1: guys have uh grown quite a bit since uh that first call oh Sounds yeah like. we sure have. what year would you what was primos the company primos hunting calls what was the first year
0: um, 76 was the first year i sold products to sporting goods stores
1: 1976 yeah and was your calls at that time was it just turkey calls
0: at that time, it was just turkey calls. Okay. Actually, the first call I ever made was a duck call. Okay, yeah. but I, I never, I never entered the market. I just made them for my personal pleasure. Yeah, uh, and, and turkey was the first thing that I offered for sale.
1: At that time, what what was your decision on coming forward with a you know a turkey call? Was that just a species that you were addicted on well, what, chasing what at the that time? About
0: was that the calls that were out there? They didn't have the the. The tone and the rasp that, okay. that me and my buddies were looking for. So all my buddies they, they kept prompt prompting me to you know, make this call, make make me one, make me one, because I'd made one for myself. And one thing led to another and I ended up making a call that was totally different than what the what what was already in production and in the marketplace. Now there were some individuals making a similar call in little small spots of Mississippi and this call was actually a separated read called um, it, it, the reed didn't touch. The, reed, the reeds were separated, so you got a oh. real good rasp. And if you use the call correctly, you got a great tone. And that's what really drove it and started the company.
1: Cool, cool. So it was something different. And um, your video series. When did you start the the videos? Or I guess first you started audio first, and then TV. Um, when did you start recording? animals and your calling and all that on video um audio first
0: audio was in 83 was when i when i put out the first i did that um uh, in the spring of 83 and then that fall introduced it in the spring of 84 was the first big sales for an audio tape I actually hired a guy that um could follow me in the woods and and actually record everything with these real fancy recorders these were they were real to real and they weren't small they were real big and um you actually got the, the turkey, did it on turkey, on turkey calling back, coming up, getting shot, flopping on the ground, and all of our our, <laughs> our little little things we said to each other. And so we'd go back and dissect the hunt and say, well, we first made contact with the turkey with this sound, and then we did this call, and then he answered back, and we'd do this. So we taught people how to call up a turkey.
1: Yeah, yeah, which, uh, you know, I don't know at that time how popular calling was but in the availability of production calls you know but um, would you say in the early 80s calling really blew up
0: yes it really did and there were a lot of good manufacturers out there who who were with primos uh, way back in the back of the pack somewhere but there were some other manufacturers. Uh, ben Lee was a manufacturer out of Alabama who had uh, had had some good calls and was doing a good job at that time. Quaker Boy was one. Perfection was one. All these were in the turkey world. Okay. Uh, Penns Woods was one. Those have all kind of changed and it's it's kind of evolved into another way. And Primos has has risen to the top through all that. But. Um, yeah. At any rate, you know that it was a it was a lot of fun being a part of that. It was high competition, and and I never really did the contest deal. The okay. contest deal is my contest was in the woods. I didn't care about the stage because it was really um, it, it was an intangible thing. One day a, a judge felt good and he, he gave a guy one score this time, and the next time he gave a, the guy another score. So I, I was interested whether or not I could call game up.
1: <laughs> yeah, if it worked on live animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when did you introduce your first elk call?
0: First elk call was in 1988, I believe it was. And it was a roaring failure. Uh, just... You know, I didn't have enough experience. I used my turkey knowledge to try to create um, what I thought was the proper type of call, and it just didn't work well. And um, I I, I just kept looking and searching, created a bugle, and then um, I I ran into a guy, uh, uh, his name is Rocky Jacobson, and he is from he was from Orfino, Idaho, and he had created a mouth call that totally changed in my opinion uh, the tonal qualities for using a diaphragm call in your mouth to call elk to, to be able to cow call and to bugle but cow call especially and um, so we 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 did an agreement where he was continue to promote his own line, which he still does uh, under the bugling bull's um, name and uh Primos did it, and uh, that really got me started, and and really, really put out some great product that added a lot of value to the elk hunter. And from there, we've just gone all the way. The one of the greatest calls we ever created was the Hoochie Mama. It's a call that somehow, another, I got lucky, and I I was laid in bed and I kind of envisioning it. I was half asleep. And I remember getting up that morning and drawing out what my what my brain had visualized how I could produce this sound in a mechanical device. And the Hoochie Mama's been the best calling elk call of all time. Oh, yeah. Best-selling elk call of all time.
1: But yeah, it, it helps me call in my first bull.
0: Yeah, yeah it's elk. a great product. But, uh, you know, I, I think one of the magic things for us at Primo's is that we're not worried about who gets the credit. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's all about being in the right place at the right time, being a little bit lucky and working hard and listening to different people and, and and hearing what their thoughts are and gathering all that information and putting it together to try to provide a product that will benefit the hunter. Uh, It's not about us. It's about the hunter. It's about the consumer. If we can't make a a good product for them, then we failed in our overall mission. So,
1: yeah. uh, Well, I know the Hoochie Mama definitely has played a good role in, I mean, at least bringing them in after that point, you know, I've, kind of created my own luck there, but um, I actually grew up in Oregon, uh-huh. and um, I guess my first elk hunt was, and I I'll, i hate to admit this, but my first elk hunt was in 1990, uh-huh. and at that time, even up until, as a kid, elk just... They were more mystical creatures, you know, yes, they, uh-huh. they were like the, 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 big animal in the forest that you rare, rarely ever saw. You'd see, you know, some sign of tracks here and there. We knew they were around, but just hunting them wasn't popular. It's tough. The where I grew up is it's not known for the quality of its elk hunting, but uh-huh. they are there. Well, since that time and about uh, in 2004, I started getting into elk hunting. Um, what i started with I started with peterson's bow hunting in '04. had you know opportunity to hunt a little longer put in more time and really started concentrating in elk you know and i remember as a kid reading you know larry jones's stuff and dwight, yeah, yeah dwight, dwight shoe stuff about them calling in yeah elk great and
0: guys all they they've been a big big compliment to the hunting uh uh, hunters, all us.
1: Yeah, and they're both from Oregon, so mm-hmm. I really looked up to them. But it was just like, how are they calling an elk, and where are these elk that they're calling? Well, in 04 we decided, you know what? I got your Mastering Arts DVD. R- listened to the different sounds. Got some calls. You know the the um my, the blue one, which I believe is the century, correct? Uh huh. The blue reed. Um, use that in a hoochie mama. And really, our first day out um, in 2004 in elk season, we called in a bunch of elk. Nice uh-huh. bull, um, a spike. My buddy ended up um, hitting the spike. But, you know, it just from then on, I saw, like, the opportunities, you know, and just how effective your calls, the diaphragm, the hoochie mom, especially, for someone not having a lot of experience listening to elk, you know, we were able just to push push and call them right in so um definitely an awesome call thank you will Yeah, good. <laughs> i think good. a lot of elk hunters across the country you know is you know i mean who goes out in the woods these days almost without a hoochie mama it's just something that you, you it's
0: know, a you, mighty accurate sounding call it's been yeah wonders
1: yeah the blue reed the century is my favorite for some yeah, it tracks, reason it's actually
0: a, a dark uh, almost a, a bluish black tape and it has uh the, the century has a, a latex colored type reed it's kind of a the reed's kind of that latex color.
1: Okay, okay. Um, and uh, what are what are the other? Uh, let's, since we're talking about them, what are the diaphragms in your lineup?
0: Well, we, we've got you know the we've got the the pallet plate or, or um, palette, uh, the pallet plate style calls, and okay. you've got the uh, sonic dome style calls, and okay. um, both of them have the structure over the reed, which makes the calling so much easier. For someone to duplicate, because it sets it at the correct angle, it doesn't let you overblow the reed very easily, um, and and we've got several in each line, and we even have some really small ones. The biggest deal for for mouth calls is they've got to fit your mouth. If they mm-hmm. don't fit your mouth, it's going to be very difficult to use. So we make uh, two sizes, and we've got the Sonic Dome and the Mini Sonic Domes, uh, and and then you've got the 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 plate calls, the uh, sound plate or pallet plate calls series. Okay. And that, that's a sentry plate and the ivory plate, and imperial plate, and the hyper plate. And I new when we had a couple years ago, we entered to call the top pin. Um, but uh, we've got uh, about um, somewhere around 12 different uh, mouth calls, trying to get them to fit somebody's mouth and and a read combination that makes it easy uh, for you to use. Some people... One style is easier for one person versus another. So once you find one you really like, that's what usually, usually that uh, people stick with.
1: Now, with that one call, too, I mean, is it... Um, can it produce that a variety of... Uh, the whole range of sounds, as long yeah, as it the fits only, you correct? Or do you look at different models, too, to kind of...
0: For different people, it's a little bit easier to produce some sounds on some of the calls. Um, uh, for a really... Really heavy, strong bugle, uh, you're going to want to probably use the imperial plate, but all okay. the calls will make a great bugle. Yep. It depends on whether you're what you're trying to do. Now the sentry plate, that plate is lower, it's closer to the reed, and so it's going to make spike and young Bull bugles um, really easy. It's going to make a making a big bull a little bit harder to do, but it also is a great cow call. All these calls are make great cow sounds and bull sounds.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. For sure. Um, I know. I mean, I'm still practicing on the bugling with with you know my diaphragms. Uh-huh. Um, I use your your Terminator bugle and baffle mostly. Uh huh. Um, but. The um, I have one buddy. He bugles with his, you know, with his diaphragms, and he he does excellent at it. Right. I just, uh, I don't know. The the baffle has been working great for us the last that's a couple good call. years.
0: Yep. Good bugle, good bugle.
1: What um, what what's do you have a favorite or one that works best for you?
0: You personally? know, I'm I'm a real finesse caller. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I you gotta you don't want to be too aggressive at the wrong time. Sometimes that's the worst thing to do. So I'm using a call that's very sensitive that I can just breathe on it that'll make it work. So I'm very fond of the top pen. I also like the sentry plate, which you you have mentioned.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the, the dome calls, I like those as well. Um, you know, you end up taking them all, and I usually end up using one almost the whole season. So they're all very capable of producing great sounds.
1: Yeah, yeah. At what age, uh, when did you go on your first elk hunt? How old I, were you?
0: I went on the first elk hunt in eighty. Seven or eighty-eight.
1: So that first, basically, is you were testing your calls that first year. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And how how'd you do, successful um, wise?
0: I made a uh, a mistake, um, called up a bull and shot him walking, uh. and uh, did not find him till days later, and mm-hmm. uh, that was a big lesson for me. Uh, I'm primarily an archer. And you know you got an elk at twenty yards, and he's a big animal, and he's walking, and you put it behind the shoulder, and don't realize that air is going to move twelve to eighteen inches back the other way because the elk doesn't stop walking. Yeah, so I've learned to I've learned to teach people to stop them, um, and that was a that was a big letdown. But I, I guess you could say I was fifty percent successful because I, I recovered the animal, but not the same day.
1: Yeah, yeah, know. it's There's a
0: lot of lessons there, and, and you know a lot of people get so caught up in the moment, and, and I did too, and I had to realize, hey. Enjoy the moment. If you don't get that perfect shot, then don't take it. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, wait wait till you do get the t- time. And then we began to develop techniques where we always took a caller. So we're really hunting in teams of three. There's mm-hmm. a cameraman that stays with the shooter, and the caller backs up and moves to one side because elk, we figured out finally, they get to 75 yards, whether they're in heavy timber or not, and they stop to listen and look. And if somebody's back behind you, they'll walk by the shooter broadside and never know you're there. And it just in, it increases your, your chances of being successful by close to 100%. So I advise everybody to try to use a, a team yeah. uh, and pick one shooter and one guy call. And when that guy gets his shot or, or, or is able to uh, kill a, a nice bull, then the next guy starts hunting.
1: Yeah, it's something we've been – now, we're, is this a tactic that you were le- using in the late 80s? Uh, this is
0: a tactic that we've Probably centered in on some time between, we began to figure it out in 90, 91, and 92, and it developed on from there. Um, Matter of fact, I I forget which elk tape we're now producing. Uh, Truth. um,
1: 14, isn't it?
0: It may be 14. It's amazing that so many years have gone by that (laughs) uh, it's so easy to forget what truth you're on. and. We've thought about changing the name a few times, but it sure it sure does work well.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, yep. and I think just as a whole series, you know, it's it, it complements every species. I mean, it's yep. it's the yep. truth about you know the hunt, the calling, the, right. um, the sounds, and um, so you were 1988, nineteen eighty eight first elk hunt. So when did you actually kill your first elk?
0: That that year I killed one, but I oh didn't okay yeah, yeah. After okay the first.
1: But, and how about uh, the next after year? That
0: day, after that day, uh, he was a five by five. Cool. And yeah. I was mighty proud of him. Um, and then uh, on the truth, one uh, was the first recorded uh, kill. I've never killed an elk that wasn't on video. Okay. And I think I've killed—I don't know how I many—I've killed over thirty, but um, that, that every one I've been on video. And And wow. um, I usually hunt two or three states a year. Okay. Um. And I uh, spent a lot of time out there doing it.
1: What uh, What state was that first elk killed at?
0: That was in Colorado. Cool.
1: I'm headed to Colorado for, my, for the first time to hunt this year. Oh, three, good. Three weeks, excellent. my first elk hunt in Colorado.
0: Great, excellent. You'll love it.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, as we get into, you know, basically it's a time right now. Everyone's gearing up for elk season. You know, we're talking elk, dreaming about elk gathering our calls and whatnot are there any tactics um you know are there any early season tactics that you guys use for calling an elk
0: yeah you know early season to me is september 1 to september 10th okay and when you start getting past the 10th it can vary whether you're in the canadian rockies or where you are in the united states in 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 the elk country of the united states but typically that, that it's it's They'll start bugling and getting really serious, and getting, and the cows might be gathered up by the bulls by the 12th or shortly thereafter. And um, it depends on accessing good places that are managed well. Mm-hmm. If you have a, a lot of, of people hunting public ground, you, you're going to need to find those areas that people don't want to access. Sometimes it's close to the trailhead because everybody walks by that spot, or it may be so far back; it may take you two days to get in there. Yeah. Um, but elk are, can be extremely sensitive, and once they smell you and you bump them, a lot of times they will leave the country. Mm-hmm. They will leave that particular area. They're not. They're no longer. You're not going to hear them. Yeah. And that they get over pressured. Uh, they don't answer. There's too much calling. Too much bugling. Uh, so a lot of early season stuff is possibly watching a water hole, watching a walla, getting someplace, watching the wind, being sure you keep the wind in your favor. All sad stories about elk hunts are about the wind. Elk will forgive his eyesight, he'll forgive what he hears, but he's not going to forgive his nose. He smells something, it's done. Yeah, so true. Um, and I think that a lot of people... Try to be too sneaky when they're moving in on an elk. Now, if you're moving in on an elk that's rubbing a tree or, or bugling, and you're not making any any sound at all, you don't know know you're there at all. That's one tactic for for spotting stalk, so to speak. But if you're getting ready to call and you're trying to move into where the elk getting close enough to the elk to get them to want to come to you. We are very aggressive. We'll walk by a, a, a branch on the side of a tree, bam, we'll pop it off, pow! We'll take the limb and rake it up against the side of the tree and move on a little bit further. We're trying to make the same noises that elk make when when elk are moving through the woods. We'll kick a rock and roll it down the hill. These are all sounds that elk make when they're aggressive and moving around and a bull's chasing cows and a cow's not ready yet or, or, a, or a cow's moving the herd on and you got to remember that the cows are in charge. Mm-hmm. If you call and all of a sudden you hear him going away, he's following cows. He's not going moving from your call. He's staying with what he already knows and what he already sees. Yeah. So you take all that information and try to use it in such a way, early season, make them curious. They're not really gathered up yet. You're making real soft cow sounds, answering it with a real soft cow uh, calf sound. You're like a cow and a calf together. If you got two of you together, you want to get about 20, 30 yards apart. Keep Make sure you keep an eyesight of each other. And you're just making sounds of elk, and all of a sudden a bull will show up, but he's liable to come in totally silent. You'll never hear him. You won't hear him walking, more than likely. Uh, then as you get closer and you begin to see rubs or breaks, in some parts of the country it's rather odd, these bulls walk up to aspen trees and snap them in two. Yeah. We call them breaks, and I've seen that primarily in northern New Mexico and southern Colorado, and I've seen it less in other parts of the west. There may be some other places I hadn't visited that do that, but it's amazing. All of a sudden, one morning, you didn't see any, and the next morning, they like they walked down the old logging road and snapped off every aspen down the road. Yeah. It was as big as uh, you know, big as your middle finger or two, two sizes of your middle finger. But yeah, you know, the... You're just trying to, to, to gently enter the area and be an elk, keeping the wind in your favor. Remember, they start smelling you, you're going to screw it up big time. And then when you get on past the 10th to the 11th to the 12th and they really start bugling and get aggressive, you just want to get the wind right and you want to get a caller behind you and you want to use cow calls and bugles. And some of the most effective things that we do is answering our own calf sounds, cow sounds with a bugle and you mm. start really bugling a lot. I'm talking about aggressive. Now, these are in well-managed places that are possibly private ranches or places where the bulls are all ganged up with a lot of cows, and you start putting on that show, and it's surprising what you call up.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I know Ferrari is I mean, I definitely have watched your Truth videos and have tried to apply the same, you know, kind of calling techniques to our area. It's a little different as... I do hunt mostly public land. Yeah.
0: Every area is different.
1: Yep. It's extremely pressured, but mm-hmm. I do have access to a 3000 acre ranch. Uh huh. And, um, it's basically the playground every year come, you know, basically they, I mean, they have year round residents, you know, the, the elk do winter there, yes, but sir. it's, it's in the Cascades at 5,000 feet, the East side. So there's snow, but the, um, the, uh, what we found out is, honestly, is we're not going to get on elk there unless we're calling. It's just we're not going to spot and stock 'em. them. I mean, I, you, you can... I, and and that doesn't mean call all day long, but maybe a locating call in the morning mm-hmm. yep. and then just charging like a madman until you catch up to them. That's, that's kind of the way we work it, because they go from the private ranch in the meadow up into the timber and then back down in the evening. And... uh on our best days, it's, it's when we're just creating, you know, the full on herd and, uh, you know, different at times, we've even had four people, which I think is probably overkill, but it mm-hmm. does seem that three is kind of a a really good number for us to, to manage. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I'm, I do a little more of the softer, subtle calls. My buddy is good on the estrus calls and got a buddy rock and a hoochie mama. And combined it's like, you know, it's music to their ears, I think it sometimes. Yep. And I did say earlier, I've uh you know, I I hate to admit it because I've put in I first hunted elk like when I was thirteen and basically like nineteen ninety, I think it was, eighty nine ninety. And I have yet to kill an elk. Uh-huh. And uh Man, I you know since '04 I've been trying like a madman. The last three years I've drawn on you know just monster six by six bulls all on public land, but uh, every experience I've been on my own. I've kind of left my buddies to call and back, and then ended up getting too far ahead, where I end up becoming the solo caller. And I've you know I I bring them in right to me. And you know, I've had a cow, cow and a bull. A cow walked up to me to. Basically four yards, uh-huh. and that was a great experience because I never realized how soft and quiet they are. I mean, they can be mighty quiet. She looked at me and did this mew, and I was just like,
0: "Wow!"
1: You know, it, it was so subtle and soft.
0: Mm-hmm. Can't uh, hear it ten yards away.
1: Yeah, I know, I know. Um, you know, but just that. You know, the soft calls, and it, it really opened up my eyes. And just watching your guys' series, and and um, one thing. Uh, When it comes to later in the season and bugling, you know, you said you'll get into those, you know, good areas where you guys are bugling, answering your own calls. What about locating bulls in the morning and actually picking and choosing where you're going to hunt? I mean, is that something that you, I know for myself, like we have to get up fairly early, get in there in the dark and start locating them if we have any shot of getting on them, you know, by 9, 10 o'clock.
0: Yeah, well, hunting a place year after year is going to be a a big help because you're going to have experience of what what was like last year, what the prevailing winds are. But knowing what the winds are uh, is going to dictate where we're going to start out and what we're going to do because if we don't have the wind in our favor, we're fighting a, a, a losing battle, and we're just going to change our tactics. And sometimes we'll go to an area we weren't planning to go to because the wind was better. Yeah. So that that's a big factor for us. We try to stay as scent free as we can. We use the Silver XP products that we make, and it helps, but it's not a cure-all. I mean, you're producing a lot of odor, a lot of sweat, and you've got to con- continually try to stay scent free. So it helps. The, the lower your scent level, the better, but you can't eliminate it 100%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's a big factor for us. And then if it depends on the terrain, if you're hunting big, huge meadows, we call them dance floors. It's where the elk go down to do their nighttime dances and chase and and carry on, and and we... If we know where these are and we can get above them and use binoculars and see, and we got the wind in our favor, then that's going to tell. Well, now they're using that ridge to move back into the timber, and so we'll try to move and get to that ridge so we can get into position. So, that's another tactic to use is to be able visually see what's going on right at first light. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you can't do that, you got to use your ears. But it is absolutely amazing how many times I've been standing in one spot and bugle and hear not hear an answer. Move 50 yards, and because of the ridge and the way the land laid, I can now hear the bull. I moved back to where I was, where I couldn't hear him, and can't hear him. Wow. That happened to me because I needed to access the area from down below. I had to go back. So when I'd go back and bugle, get, hear him again. I didn't hear him, so they'd come. I'd walk back up 50 yards, and, be, and I'd hear him. So it's amazing what little bit of terrain features you, you can uh, that are there that cause the sound to not reach your ears yeah, uh, yeah. so it's something to, to remember
1: do you think it's common too sometimes for hunters though at the same time to get up too quick and leave an area from when they were calling and well get typically up
0: typically f- the elk come down in the afternoons. Mm-hmm. they come down to the meadows in the afternoon and they move up in the mornings okay. and typically in, in the mornings the wind, the the, the tri- prevailing, the ca- the currents, the, the the air masses are coming down the hill. So if you get in front of them in the morning to try to get in front of them, they smell you. Yeah. So you got to get off to one side. You got to figure it out. You got to get to where they're going before yeah. they ever get there. Mm-hmm. Many times we've gotten up after figuring it out, and we will leave the elk, totally leave them, and go to where we know they're going to end up at ten o'clock. Okay. And start from there, and the winds will shift by that time. And we have done extremely well doing that. But it takes understanding where they're going to end up. Hmm. They're moving from the dance floor, and this one place I'm thinking of right now, as I tell you the uh, the story, we called it the Ramada, for, uh, short for Ramada Inn. Mm-hmm. It's where they stayed, you know, during the day. Okay. They're going to the Ramada. Let's go, you know. <laughs> and so we, it might take us two or three hours of hard pressing to get there. Yeah, but yeah. we're there. We're there in front of them, and they don't smell us by being able to get that far in front of them.
1: Cool. Okay, I have one more or a couple more questions um, for the her, for for herd bulls. When you know you're chasing and hunting herd bulls, you know they're definitely probably a, you know they're a different breed of animal. It can be awfully difficult to respond, especially when they have cows with them. You know what has worked for you and your team in the past on the herd bulls?
0: What's worked the best, and when you say herd bull, some people are thinking of a class of animal, a 350-plus okay. animal or whatever. A herd bull could be a 300-inch animal. doesn't matter. But a yep. herd bull typically means that he's got the herd. Okay. If he's by himself and he doesn't have any cows or he's lost his cows, that changes the game. Yep. So let's talk about the fact that he's got cows. Okay. So if I've got the wind... And I'm keeping up with them, and I'm listening to the cows, and I'm listening to them bugle every once in a while. We will stay with them until they get to where they want to go. And then you let them start bedding down. Mm. And you got to be sure and remember how many cow eyes are that are watching. Mm -hmm. When I'm thinking of a hunt two years ago, we did this kind of happened by accident because we lost the herd and then we realized they were going to bed down in this one thick little, we call it Christmas tree spot. And so we let them bed up. I set we set the shooter up and the cameraman and I went past the shooter and the cameraman into the Christmas tree thicket, got to what I felt like within a hundred yards of the bull, very, very thick, thick area. And I bugled in his face, cow Cal called and bugled again But the second bugle was more grunting than bugling. Mm -hmm. And I had to turn around and run (laughs) when I heard him coming. So I threatened him that another bull had gone in there and stolen one of his cows. Okay, Now, you know, that was successful. Is it always successful? No, but it sure is a fun, intense tactic.
1: Hey, you gotta have you have to have all the all the tools in your bag. At sometimes, right? Yep. I mean, it all helps. What works one day isn't going to work the next, but it, right. it's nice to know, you know, you know, what has worked for you guys. Um, how about that solo bull without the cows?
0: Well, it depends on what his, uh, what his temperament is, whether he wants to come or not, or how he's acting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so you just have to take all of this information, take his temperature, see how aggressive he is, see what the deal is, and uh, decoys have been used real effectively by a lot mm. of people. The Montana decoy uh, has worked well. Uh, this is that flat decoy that pops out, yep, yep, and uh, just Jerry, to let that Jerry elk McPherson. see something and to, to see a silhouette of a, of another elk uh, will convince him to come on in. But once the bulls get that old, they know the game so to speak, and, and you just have to catch them right uh, to, to be able to get get them to come to a call. Sometimes mm-hmm. the best thing to do with those big bulls is to keep visually and try and see where he is and do not call or leave your buddy back 300 yards calling and let him bugle or let him just mm-hmm. back to you every once in a while and let you sneak in on him.
1: That worked for us two years ago, and that's one of the closest I've came to killing an elk. It just... We decided to leave my buddy way back, you know, not your hundred yards back, but like you said, three, four hundred yards. Mm-hmm. We knew he was by himself, by his tracks, and uh, it took an hour and a half, of maybe two hours, of dogging him. And uh, he'd, you know, we'd we'd call, he'd call back, you know. Sometimes he'd be closer, then he'd be further away. Well, I end up just got close enough to breaking in, you know, his zone. Did a couple cow calls. My buddy ripped a bugle away from the back, just perfect timing, and he just came running down the mountain. Mm-hmm. Twenty yards, and he stopped behind that one tree. He shouldn't have. <laughs> and then he like vanished. He just disappeared. He almost yeah, like yeah. backpedaled the way he had came and just did like a full on one eighty. Next thing I know, I saw his butt eighty yards away, walking away from. Yeah, it. yeah. It was a. It was an awesome hunt, though. Um. Last question I have for you. Um, do you have a successful and one successful and one unsuccessful hunt that stands out the most to you or that is the most memorable for one reason or <laughs> um, another?
0: You know, if, if you'd give me some time to think about it, I could come <laughs> back uh, a whole lot quicker. But, um, you know, probably the unsuccessful hunts are the ones that have been sad. Uh, and thank heavens there haven 't been many of them mm-hmm. there 've been ones when the shot was rushed, or i didn 't think it through, or I misjudged the distance. Uh, little things like that um, yep. where you where you made a a what we call a flag shot you know shooting a, an elk in the shoulder where it doesn 't get any penetration it doesn 't hurt him uh, it scares him but it doesn 't hurt him and, but you lose the opportunity for that animal yep. uh, and th- those are always sad, so I think the advice that I give there is. You know, think it through. If it's not just like you want it, if it's not on your terms, then pass it up because that's when the sad time comes is when you you haven't made a good shot and you've got to deal with the prospect of a, a wounded animal. Yep, yep. And probably um, one of the most uh, you know, memorable hunts that I can think of, just trying to run them all through my head And right now as I talk to you, was being able to have my wife with me and see an elk way off and and make a a a, a little light bugle to see what he would do. And the cow he was with, for some reason, decided she knew that bull or wanted to meet that bull, and she brought the bull all the way. <laughs> and we were able to kill him. And he was like, "Holy <laughs> smoke! Thank you, girl." You know, because it wasn't it wasn't me calling the bull. It was her that came to the call.
1: He's like, "Where are you going? Where are you going?" <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Come back here. Yeah. Wrong way. Oh, that's funny um was that about was that hunt about was that on the truth videos like three yeah, or four think we got one of
0: them. i don't remember which one right now but it yeah, sure I was i remember
1: watching that one i think um you and laura i think were pretty happy from what i remember yeah yeah a really exciting hunt and just started to notice that she was there to
0: yeah mary to, my wife mary yeah, yeah. to yeah. share with you yeah
1: you know, well, you mentioned you have a, a couple calls on hand, and uh, I think it would be great if we could provide our give our listeners, uh, you know, a little sample of, of what you guys do in the woods and right. maybe how you well, approach your calling.
0: All right. Well, you know, elk is kind of interesting. I, every animal's voice can be different. Like a turkey's voice breaks. It breaks from a high to low, and it breaks, to get the yawk or the yelp, uh, an elk is a sliding note, it, there is no break, and the break is what can mean danger, they, that's where the bark comes into place, but okay. this is a hoochie mama, and uh, you can hear that, that sliding from a high to a low, and so the same thing with an open read call, this is a hyperlip, or you can use the, what we call, I'll make a the bull crazy, that's the name of the call, mm-hmm. I'll make a the bull crazy. But it's an open reeded call, and you're putting the reed in your mouth and pressing it against the soundboard and moving your lips and to extend or, or change the effective length of the reed so that you're taking the uh, call from a high note to a low note. I held the phone okay. away from it because that's a pretty harsh, loud sound at that one-inch distance to a phone. Yeah. But that's... Uh, that, that's two of the cow the calls cow, the that make cow sounds, and then here's a mouth call. This is a sound plate or pallet plate. <coughs> and all those are different levels of intensity and sounds from calf little chirps to more estrus type sounds.
1: Yeah, and then the great.
0: bugle. A bugle is uh, is is. Some people call it a whistle, and it, and that's pretty much all a bugle is. Then, if you want to add uh, a growl to it, and the bugle, and then a chuckle, um, you're actually adding your voice to the call. I'm going, er, you are, er, okay, and then I end it with a. Break and then the chuckle. (coughs) You can add all types of little nuances to really make a bull think that you really are a bull. And then you've got what I call the display bugle, which is real aggressive for a bull, and that can fire them up sometimes. But they're not that hard to use. You just got to practice and listen and. Make sure you're giving it all that sliding note. Bull bugles slide, they slide up to seven octaves, and then you've got the cow sounds that uh, go from a high to a low.
1: Great, great. Well, yeah, and notice, like, and occasionally in the times that I've been in the woods, you know, you'll find bulls that will respond only to, you know, a certain call. and yep. You kind of got to play with them to find I what exactly sometimes they they're right there. I do liking. that
0: because you're sounding like a bull they know, and yeah. they, they're answering their buddy.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or who used to be their buddy before the rut started. Yeah.
1: yeah, no longer friends now. That's right. Oh, one thing. I have four questions that, I'm at, that I ask uh, the people I interview. Um, what do you prefer, feathers or fletching?
0: Oh well, you know, for the what I, for are the feathers I'm shooting are feathers now are and, and what I'm veins. doing, uh, I like I like veins. Okay, uh, and uh, they're they're a whole lot easier to keep up with, and and they, they just hold up so much better. And I'm shooting a little small veins.
1: Cool, cool, yeah. As I am, as I am too. Okay, your favorite species to hunt is.
0: You know, I'm glad they don't all come at the same time of mm-hmm. year. Um, you know. I thank heavens elk season's when it is, and <laughs> the the rut for southern whitetails is when it is in, in December, yep. and and duck season is December and January, and turkey season is in the spring. Don't make me choose one or the other. All right.
1: It was perfectly planned, you know, as the, uh, the seasons were dictated. Yeah. It's perfect. And, okay, what is your favorite music band or group?
0: You know... I, I uh that music, um I'm a I'm a product of the sixties and seventies. Okay. And um there, there's just uh you know, Peter Frampton is a is a great uh guitarist oh, yeah. and, and rock and roll guy. Dan Fogelberg was just a great um uh, I just love what he does. Um, you know, you, you uh you've got so many in that era that um I listen to the bridge on on Sirius XM radio, okay, yep. and I get I get a full flavor. Crosby, David Crosby, Graham Nash, Stephen Stills, Neil Young, uh, all those are just <laughs> are, are great. Uh, Bob Seger is incredible. Van Morrison, awesome. Oh
1: yeah,
0: uh, you know Elton John. You know these are just classics that so yep. many people love, and, and we grew up with it. And it, and I tell you what, that music. Uh, It stands the test of time. But, you know, then I love good country. I do not like forced country. Yep. George uh, Stray is probably my favorite if I had to only listen to one. Cool. Uh, You know, there's just a a James Taylor. I mean, I can just keep thinking. Uh, Joni Mitchell. I mean, these are just.
1: I share some of the same favorites. I think I'm old soul, but also just my mother. But James Taylor is one of my favorites. Yeah. I've seen Crosby Stills Nash and Young, Van Morrison. Yeah, um, he got he got good taste. Will well,
0: good. <laughs> <laughs> last
1: last question: What's your draw length?
0: My draw length, if I'm shooting a recurve, it's going to be twenty nine, and or a long bow, I'm, I'm pulling about twenty nine. If I'm shooting a compound, I'm setting that up for about twenty eight and three quarters, uh, just to, just to maybe a tad over that, just for the style that I shoot. Perfect.
1: Well, I think that's all we have time today for, Will. But, uh, you know, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, well,
0: thanks for your enthusiasm and your love of the sport. Uh, We need more people wanting to enjoy it so we can protect elks. There'll be a bunch more of them for future generations to enjoy.
1: No, oh, it sounds like a plan to me. And I I wanted to thank you on one thing, um, or congratulate you, on your NWTF Prestigious Hunting Heri- Heritage Award. Oh,
0: well, thank you. That was quite an honor.
1: Yeah, I know. You, you know, like you mentioned before, your, your partnership or relationship with the NWTF and right. your uh, involvement with... Rocky Melton Elk Foundation and QDMA, and it's, uh, you know, we appreciate it. And and, uh, Ducks
0: Unlimited as well. They're all good organizations.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, And uh, good luck this year, Will Hunting. Uh, Real quick, uh, what's your first elk hunt? Where are you headed?
0: I'm going to uh, Montana to to the Belt Mountains. Uh, I believe it's uh, northeast of Bozeman. Bozeman. Cool. And I go to southern Colorado from there.
1: All right, well, thank you again, Will. Good luck uh, this year with all your hunts, and uh, we look forward to following you guys on the next Truth Series. All right,
0: man. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate everything.
1: All right, have a great day.
0: You Bye. too. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio with Associate Editor Dan Beraldo. Be sure to pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.